I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If you've never heard the show before, well, I've got good news for you. It's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who shaped who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who inspired you. So every educator we have on this show, whether teacher, coach, or counselor, is nominated by you, our listeners. So we'd like you to be a part of the show. Tell us about the person who comes to your mind when we say that. Shoot us an email at teacherslounge at niu.edu and nominate an educator in your life. All right, on today's episode, we are chatting with Dr. Joel Fillmore. Joel's a professor who teaches counseling courses and is a licensed counselor and researcher focusing on LGBTQ plus issues, substance abuse, sex trafficking, and more. Joel is also the author of several books, and we talk about Joel's incredible life story and journey through addiction, abuse, and prison to becoming a renowned counselor and educator and how counseling and therapy changed his life. I'm not ashamed of where I come from. And, and people need to know where I come from because there's a lot more professors in the street. A lot. Joel also happens to moonlight as drag queen Mona Lott. And in our next episode, we are going to be chatting with Mona about what she's learned through drag and as an educator hosting the podcast, Mental Health is a Drag. Before we get into my conversation with Dr. Joel Fillmore, I have a few more stories I want to share. You probably already know that there are teacher shortages across the country, and we've also recently talked about school bus driver shortages and how that impacts the community. Now, school nurses have also taken on even more responsibilities during the pandemic, you know, contact tracing, testing, calling parents of close contacts, but many schools don't have enough nurses. And I got to talk with a nurse about the dire situation in her district. Every school day during the pandemic is a challenge, but for school nurses, Monday mornings are uniquely difficult. That's when nurses like Corey Mauck of the Sycamore School District start following up with parents of students who call in sick and report COVID-related symptoms. Did they go somewhere over the weekend where they could have been exposed? Do they need a COVID test before they can come back? Do they need to talk to their pediatrician? It's time-consuming, but very important. And then you have some of the kids that come to school, but then as that day goes on, they're not feeling well, and whatever they were exposed to over the weekend is starting to show itself, and then they come to the nurse office. Malk says they've had around 10,000 health office visits from students this year. Not all of those are because of COVID, but it's a heavy, sometimes overwhelming workload for a department, like many districts, that's understaffed. Sycamore has seven schools and only six nurses. That includes Mauk. As district nurse, she oversees all of their health operations, but because of these staff shortages, she's been thrust into covering individual buildings as well. There just really isn't time to take a breath and even get caught up, so you kind of feel like you start every day behind. They also don't have any substitute nurses, which means if a nurse is out for a day, Mauk and her colleagues step in and add schools and their hundreds, if not close to a thousand students, to their duties. We had nurses out on Thursday, Friday, and then again yesterday. So it looked like me covering one day a middle school building, which has about 900 students, and then the other two days was covering two buildings that had about 800 total students between the two buildings. That's on top of her other responsibilities, which include providing COVID rapid tests, contact tracing, and notifying families when their child is a close contact or tested positive. When they find out that they have to go home, it definitely pulls at your heartstrings, and we want the kids to be able to be in school. 
The school nurse shortage in Sycamore is new this year. So without that safety net, Mauk says nurses often feel guilty when they miss a day because of their own health or to care for their kids. She says nurses' families have gone above and beyond. We have mothers who have come from out of state to take care of sick children, even children who are positive with COVID, so that their nurse mom could continue to work because the need is so great. So how many more nurses would they need to feel comfortable about staffing? Mauk says, I mean, I would love to have a nurse in every building or even, you know, just have some some substitute nurses. On top of the pressure to keep kids safe and healthy, she says they've also had to field calls from angry parents who disagree with the COVID-19 safety protocols. Mauk says that's new this year, too. It has included raised voices, some accusations, even insults and profanity. And those can be really disheartening and, and difficult on top of all of the things, you know, that we've devoted ourselves to as nurses and health staff. But there have been some silver linings as well. She says the health office can feel like an island sometimes, disconnected from the rest of the school. But the pandemic, as she says, has brought everyone to that island. Administration and other staff across our district, as well as families, have really gotten a front row seat to how important it is to have a strong health department within your school district. We're more than just band-aids and ice packs. Malk says they will continue to provide health services and emotional support to students facing a range of health needs in the district. The challenge right now is having enough time and staff to help them all. It's time for our news roundup just to catch you up on some education news that you might have missed lately. The Pfizer vaccine got approved for kids 5 to 11 years old, as I'm sure you're aware. Shots are already going in arms right now, and I got to talk with a public health administrator about the details on the differences between the kids and the adult vaccine and where people can go to get it. The Pfizer vaccine for kids is the same as for adults. The kids' version is just one-third of the adult dosage, and it's still given in a two-dose series taken 21 days apart. Lisa Gonzalez is the DeKalb County Public Health Administrator. She says the health department is scheduling limited appointments right now, offering clinics later this month, and opening appointment availability in December. We are scheduling appointments as people are calling. We are also uh, working with area school districts to survey the parents of children aged 5 to 11, just to try to get an idea of what we think the initial take rate will be. Parents can also visit their pharmacy or medical provider to get the vaccine. And the Winnebago County Health Department is working with schools to host child vaccine clinics. Gonzalez says at least initially the plan in DeKalb County is to offer appointments at the health department, a space she says may make parents feel more comfortable as opposed to a mass vaccination site. Also in other news, school districts are starting to get a clearer picture of how the pandemic has affected students through some data released from the new Illinois report card. And some of the most startling data is how many students were chronically absent last year. One of every five Illinois students was chronically absent last year. Chronic absence means they missed 10% or more of the school year. Steve Wilder is the superintendent in Sycamore, where 36% of students in the district missed that much time, and over half of low-income students. He says they have new programs to help students who missed time or struggled to learn last year. That includes WIN, or What I Need Time at the elementary level. Really breaking out times so that teachers could get a sense of where students were at, start to fill in some of those gaps, and, and give them the individual or small group attention that they needed to keep moving forward. He says their approach is to keep classes progressing while identifying student gaps along the way. 
They've also focused on social-emotional learning and trying to make them feel comfortable being back in a social classroom environment after so long. And Kelly Friedland is the superintendent of the Kinnikinick School District, where 33% of their students were chronically absent, including 43% of students deemed low-income. She says it is really hard to quantify how disruptive the pandemic has been. Third graders haven't had a normal year since kindergarten. You have a student who you can see they are in third grade, that tip of the iceberg. But what you can't see is all of the things that perhaps some were missed out that's below the surface of the water. She says their plan to get students back on track is a three-legged stool. One is core instruction, teaching third graders the third grade material. The second is targeted skills, working in small groups to fill in gaps in areas multiple kids have struggled in. And the third is personalized based on individual students. Friedland says they're utilizing social-emotional curriculum and used relief funding to lower class sizes. Now, other schools have had even higher rates of chronic absences. At the Rockford Public School District, for example, over half of all students were chronically absent, including almost 70% of black students. And we did reach out to RPS, and they said that they are going to be making a more detailed comment later on this month, but we thought it was important to get this information out there now, even though we couldn't get a comment. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with educator and counselor, the fantastic Dr. Joel Fillmore. I'm not this current term doing any teaching, but I did the previous two terms during the pandemic. Um, I was teaching for Seton Hall University out in New Jersey. Um, I've just taken on so many clinical clients that um, adjuncting for me right now is just, it's kind of disruptive to my life. I'm, and to be quite honest, I make a heck of a lot of money as a clinical therapist. So. Oh, you mean education <laughs> isn't the cash cow? No, interestingly Shocking. enough, education does not seem to be the path to riches. Well, hmm. I'm sure yeah. if there's any path that's not that too, it's education journalist. <laughs> yeah, I bet your parents are proud. That's true. I'll, I'll give them that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take what I can get, right? They're like, he's going to be moving home soon. <laughs> <laughs> Professors will tell us, in, uh, you know, they'll say, nobody goes in this profession to be rich. Don't expect to make a lot of money. Like, that's literally like the sales pitch when you get into that's day one yeah clinical and social work programs however what and when they told me that i'm like i don't know the hell you're talking to but i'm gonna make money because <laughs> that's what i do i make money um so you and, you might not make money but i will yeah that's listen i don't care what you give me to do i'm gonna make money from it and um and i made it my business to make money as a clinical therapist because I love it. Like, I love helping people. You know, there's like, there's no greater joy for me, I think, than being able to help people be better versions of themselves. And I don't define what that means. They get to define that, you know? Right. So here I am making really good money. I'm doing a job that I'm good at, that I love, and I get to help people. Like, that's like tens and wins across the board. Did you? Yeah. Education isn't always as rewarding. I was going to say, because I, I, like, I've heard you talk about being a counselor and how much you love it. And that's like something that you're really comfortable being like, this is something I'm really good at. Did you always yeah. feel that way? And, and do you feel the same way about teaching? I've always felt that way because I know what I'm good at. I am a yeah. really, I'm a great therapist because I work at being a great therapist. And I, and, but again, I'm a great therapist based on how I define what a great therapist would be, obviously. Right. Um, that being said, like, I, like, I could be a great educator. The problem is this: I'm a terrible professional. 
What do you mean? I'm the worst professional. Just like, like networking? In what, my what entire, that? Well, in my entire career, nobody has ever accused me of being professional. Like, I'm the guy who's going to drop F-bombs in class. You know, like, I don't care. I, I'm like, before I was Dr. Joel Fillmore, I was inmate R18662 at the Illinois Department of Corrections. I have a story and I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. Like, I can have a PhD and say, say the F word and both of those two things be true and valid and okay. But in education, there's this, this veneer of shiny professionalism that's defined by a very Eurocentric kind of world culture. And I don't, I don't, get, I don't ascribe to that. I, at this point in my life, I don't feel like earning a PhD means you get to tell me what the heck professional means. And that doesn't always go over really well in education. <laughs> right. Yeah, and yeah. you mentioned your story and going to prison and all that, and we're going to get into that. But you reminded me of something else that I heard you talk about, which was this idea of you know professionalism, this this aura of prestige that academia can have, and that like when you first started taking, you were in college and getting your bachelor's and your master's, that you kind of felt like you had this sort of imposter syndrome, right? That like everyone else in these programs, all just came from a perfect life, came from an mm -hmm. ideal background and just waltzed in and got, you know, got great grades. Here we are, uh, no trauma to be found. And you're like, what? <laughs> it can't only be that me. That wasn't my experience. You know, right. I came into these programs out of, fresh out of prison. I came with a lot of criminal history, a lot of trauma, a lot of pain and baggage. And, you know, I, I, and, and I would sit around these classrooms and listen to my peers and they're talking about, oh no, I don't work. My mother and father are paying my rent and keeping me alive while I go to school. And I'm like, oh wow, see, I'm like working three jobs. And my husband has three jobs, you know? That was kind of my journey through academia was, was just suffering. And at some point, I think it was right around my master's program, I started to realize that the education I was I was receiving, while it was a good education, it really wasn't central to who I was as a human being. And it wasn't central to the experiences I had as a, a queer person of color in America. And I realized that maybe I needed to be a little bit less cookie cutter as I, I mean, as, as I could be, I mean, I have brown skin. I clearly stand out in a room full of white faces. But like, you know, I was trying to be this model minority graduate student and right. like whatever that meant you know in my mind um and I just said this is bullshit like no this is like this isn't me this isn't who I am and I don't feel like like I don't feel like if I'm pretending to be this idea of what a therapist is then how am I ever going to connect with my clients and if I'm trying to pretend to be this idea of what a professor is how am I ever going to connect to my students? Right. You know, did you feel like for me? I choose yeah. authenticity over professionalism. And you felt like sometimes that wasn't the case where people just were, you know, going to school or, or were counselors and therapists and were kind of unwilling to share things about their experience. Yeah. Invariably, you know, as I began to open up and be more transparent about like my history and my journey, it, 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 it's this weird thing happening, like transitioning from my master's program into my doctoral program that the two things became conflated and that my personal story of, you know, sex trafficking and prostitution and drug addiction and prison become attached to my 
career as a therapist and my career as a professor, and subsequently the research and work and the writings that I've done over the years. If you, I've got two published books. One of them is on LGBTQI and all of the things that kind of kind of uh, can have an impact on that population, whether it's drugs, addiction, depression, anxiety, stuff like that. And the other one is a clinical counseling book for a master's counseling program with an introduction to counseling, but from a multicultural and social justice perspective. And that book I designed specifically so that every chapter was written by a senior um, a counselor educator in our field, like a very well-known senior educator. And one person and then either a master's or doctoral level student, because I wanted to be able to help master's and doctoral level students get experience writing and being published before they ever graduated, so that when they did graduate, they would have some meat and potatoes in their vita. So I purposely designed it so it was a team of a senior counselor educator, a master's or doctoral level student, and one of those people had to be a person of minority status, and the minority status couldn't just be that they were female because our field is dominated by females. So that wouldn't really be considered a, a minority in counseling, right? Yeah. So like I've done a lot, not just for my, myself and my own career, but I've done a lot intentionally to help other people who are coming up behind me, especially people of color and people who are coming from the queer community to, to have opportunities that they might not otherwise get. It was important. All right, we, we've touched on it a little bit. I feel like we should go back in. And if you, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to, do for 20 minutes, just in whatever way you, you would like to, when we're talking about your journey to getting to where you're at and to being a therapist and a professor, can you give people a little bit of context of your story? Absolutely. And we could do a quick, dirty bullet points, you know, yeah, it's um, up to you. you know, it's up I, to you. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, that's totally fine. I think, I think bullet, I mean, bullet points are fine. The, 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 the details aren't, aren't always necessary. Um, you know, I was born, I'm 51. I was born in 1970 in Chicago. Um, when I was three years old, my mother, who is white, and, um, was killed by my stepfather. So my brother and I went to Michigan to live with my mother's side of the family, which was the white side of our family. And, um, you know, when I got to Michigan that, with my mother's family, that's where sexual abuse started. That's where physical abuse started. My mother's family was very racist. So the fact that I was half black um, created a lot of problems for me in the family growing up, a lot of abuse and torture. Um, and you know, I, I was I was exactly the kind of kid you would expect me to be being sexually abused and physically abused my whole childhood. I was a liar and a thief. Um, I sought out sexual experiences with adults because that's what I knew to do. Um, started drinking when I was 10 years old to cope with the abuse, which eventually escalated into drug use in my, um, you know, 12, 12, 13 years of age. Um, and uh, by the time I was uh, 17, 18, I moved out of my grandmother's house and I moved, I was just kind of couch surfing with friends for a few years and it was bad. And that was the first time I got arrested. I was 18. I got arrested for embezzling because I was like, I was a big time. Embezzling? No, yeah, yeah. When I was 12 years old, the FBI came to my house looking for me because I was committing uh, mail fraud. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like some like high white collar climb, like you were a county clerk or something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was definitely, I was definitely like an assistant to the county clerk type. Yeah, right. Definitely. Yeah, I had a bank account and everything at 12 years old. I had my own peel box because I was doing some pretty serious, pretty serious crime at 12. But when you're 12, they don't send you to federal prison. It's interesting. So, yeah. 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 So, um, so I was exactly the kind of kid you'd expect me to be for the life I, I lived. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, 
by the time I was 21, I moved to Chicago, Illinois to live with my dad. Um, and I started college for about a year, but then, you know, I had some personal, some personal traumas that happened to me and I ended up, um, becoming a victim of sex trafficking. And then I decided I was going to transition to a woman. And so I started living my life as a female, taking hormones in the early nineties. Um, I'm a victim of sex trafficking and this pimp has me forced out on the street into prostitution through threats of violence, coercion, and substance abuse. So he had me addicted to crack and heroin. So for four years of my life, from 21 to uh, 25, 26, something like that, I was under the thumb of this pimp and then I got away from him, but then I was still addicted to crack and heroin. And so, you know, for, for 10 years total, I was on the streets as a prostitute in Chicago. I'm living as a trans woman. And uh, in December of 2001, I decided I, I was, it was just too much to have to be, turn another trip to get drugs. And so I decided I was going to do something different. And I stole a purse and I got caught. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I went to jail and, you know, I was a good, I was a really, really honest criminal. Like if I got caught, I never went to jail and tried to fight it. Like, no, I'm innocent. Give me a lawyer. You're like, it was me. I, just, I didn't really see the point. Yeah. It didn't, it seemed like a waste of time, you know? Um, so I was like, yes, it was me. And the judge says, well, thank you for being so honest. He said, boom, three years in prison. And I was like, what? Three years in prison? Are you kidding me? I stole a person. There was only $35 in it. Jesus. It wasn't like there was a Hope Diamond in there. Right. You'd get less for some of those white collar crimes that we're talking about, right? Listen, listen. Um, who's the, who's what's the, 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 the white old lady who does the cooking? Oh, Martha. Yeah, Martha, Martha Stewart, Stewart got nine months for, for, for millions of dollars in tax evasion. And you got how I much got from the purse? Three years for $35 in the purse. Yeah. It's like $15 so a stole, year. I should have stolen millions. There you go. So <laughs> now I know that as you were getting ready to re-enter, as you were getting ready to leave prison, that's when you decided I got to turn this around and I've got to apply to college. Yes. Yeah. So, so I'm in prison and at, I, you know, I was in prison for, I got three years, but when you're in prison and it's a non-violent offense in Illinois, they commute it in half right away. So of the three years I had to serve 18 months okay. and I had the possibility of getting six months of the 18 months knocked off for good behavior, but I wasn't good. Um, you'd probably be better off at asking Mona about why I wasn't good. Sure. Yeah. Um, so um, I served out the 18 months, but even though, my, keep in mind, I spent the last 10 years of my life from 21 to 31 living on the streets as a homeless, cross-dressing, drug-addicted prostitute with a pimp and addicted to crack and heroin. Even though I did that for 10 years, I've always been me. I've always been inquisitive. I've always been loquacious, the kind of person I love to talk to people. Honestly, I think it's why I made a good prostitute, because I love to talk to people, you know? And that's a weird thing to say. Like I made a good prostitute because I was a good talker, but I, I was a good talker. But it's just who you are. You know? Yeah. I, and I have a very engaging personality. I mean, don't you want to give me your money right now? <laughs> $35. Exactly. Yeah. $35. Thank you very much, sir. So um, I was getting to know the, the guys on my deck. So the prison I was in, it was um, a 23-in-1 prison, which means 23 hours a day, you stayed locked up in your cell. One hour a day, you got to be out whatever, mingling, playing cards, whatever, you take a shower. Um, 
and I would get to know the guys on my deck and they all had the same story no matter who they were. Again, this, this is your personality. Was, You're just talking to people. Yeah. Yeah. Just talking to people. And this one guy was 21 years old and he got 75 years for a double murder. And I just thought, oh my God, like he's going to die in here. He will never see the world again. And there's this old guy I talked to and he said he'd never spent more than a month of his adult life outside of prison. And so many stories like that. And I realized like once you start going to prison, it seems like it's a revolving door and that's kind of it, you know? And I thought, well, if I don't get my life together and, and stop prostituting and stop doing drugs and, and stop being homeless, like what do I have those for to either more prostitution, more jail, being locked up or someone's going to kill me. I'm going to overdose. Like I don't have a lot of good prospects ahead of me. And so I decided that the only way I could show any kind of with any due diligence that I was a changed person is if I went to school. Right. Because I had 10 years of criminal activity, arrest record. Right. Did they help you with like the application process or anything for getting into school? No, well, they didn't help me. I mean, I had access to a computer like everybody else in the prison, right. you know, on my, on my time. So yeah, so I decided to apply. And, and mind you, I had like about two years worth of college credit under my belt. Over the years, I would get clean and sober and I would go to college for a year or whatever, a semester. And, but, and so I had a couple, I had like a bunch of gen eds saved up. And so I applied to the University of Illinois Chicago while six months before I got out of prison. And I did my financial aid online from prison. Um, and I started working with a, a prison counselor to get connected with um, a halfway house because I'd been homeless for 10 years. So a couple of months later, I got a letter from UIC saying, congratulations, you've been admitted. I got a letter from the government saying, you know, you qualify for financial aid. And then I got a letter from the halfway house saying, you have a place to live. So it was like, it all just kind of lined up really, really nicely for me while I was in prison. And at that point, when you were going into college and you got accepted at UIC, at that point, did you know, you know, not only I want to go to college, but I want to be a therapist. I want to go down this specific path. Was that aware of you yet? No. Oh God, no, I didn't know. I didn't, I had no idea what I wanted to do. In fact, when I applied to college at UIC, I applied to their social work program. But what I didn't realize is that the years that I was a drug addict, they had done away with their bachelor's degree in social work at UIC. And so social work, so, you were just already at that point being like, I want to do something to help people. Something helping because I said the old, I said, I have to choose a career that by their very mission, their very mission is designed around this concept that people can change. That was literally the thing that directed my, my professional career because of my background. So I said, social workers have to give me a job because they believe people can change. And if they don't give me a job, they're hypocrites. And then I just have a story to tell. So either way, got I thought it would, yeah, either way, I thought it would work out. For me. But to my own you know, chagrin, they had done away with the bachelor's in social work. And they said, and I said, okay, well, what can I get the quickest with the, the credits I have? And they said, you can get a bachelor's degree in psychology or you can get a bachelor's degree in sociology. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know what sociology is, so I'll do psychology. That's how I chose my career. Yeah. That was it. I had no, I had no concept of anything beyond a bachelor's degree at all. In fact, nobody in my family had ever done anything beyond a bachelor's degree. And the only person that had ever done it was my brother. He had a bachelor's degree in nursing. That was it. Nobody else in the history of my family going back to slavery. And even on the white side of my family, no one has ever gone to college, you know? And so um, I just wanted a bachelor's degree. And it was interesting because I, you know, I started college and, you know, I wasn't a great student, but I was 34 years old at the time. So 
at least I wasn't distracted by the same stuff that would have distracted me when I was 18, 19, 20, right? Yeah. So I was able to be a very focused person. And even though I didn't have a lot of self-esteem, I just spent the last 10 years as a drug addict, homeless, living on the streets. And, you know, I hadn't dealt with any of the trauma of my childhood sexual abuse or any of that. So I decided to start therapy. So I started therapy while I was, right after I got out of prison, started college, and I went to therapy for a whole year. And I just worked through a lot of really incredible kind of traumatizing kind of barrier issues in my life that I really hadn't ever realized were there. And they were the things that kept me in this cycle of trauma and self-abuse and whatnot, self-sabotage. That, at that point, I started getting more engaged at the university. I started joining clubs. I became a McNair Scholar, which is um, a scholarship program for underrepresented minorities and, and, uh, minor and financially those who are underrepresented because of like lower socioeconomic status. And like that program really kind of breathed a lot of affirmation into me. Because that whole program is about like focused on getting folks to go from a bachelor's program to a doctorate. And I was like, I'm never gonna get a doctorate degree. You don't understand. I barely have any brain cells. I've smoked so much crack in the last 10 years. Trust me, I'm never gonna get a doctorate. But I might be able to get a master's degree. And so, but I loved the group and they kept talking. And I said, look, and I didn't have a great GPA in undergrad. I didn't care about my GPA at UIC. I just wanted to graduate so that when I died, I could say I did something with my life. But as I got involved with their scholars, I started caring about my GPA and I started working. And when I graduated, I graduated with like a 2.57 GPA. Not very, it was very basic stuff, not better. But I still got into a master's program, you know? And as a matter of fact, I applied to University of Chicago, Arizona State, and UIC's Jane Adams Social Work Program. And I got into all three of them. Like, University of Chicago, what the hell? Why would they let me? You know? And the only reason I didn't go there was just too expensive. Like, they weren't right. giving me They're like, you can come here, but you're probably going to have to turn tricks to afford it, you know? <laughs> so anyways, I, I started the master's program at UIC in social work, but um, after about a year and a half of it, of the two-year program, it, I realized it was a, a macro program, and, and I really wanted to do therapy because I had received so much benefit from therapy myself. So you feel like that was kind and of a moment where you realized that this was your calling, was going yeah. through therapy yourself? Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, it was, yeah, absolutely. Because when I was doing the macro program in social work, I realized like, yeah, I want to help people, but like, I don't want to help people this way. This isn't like, I don't want to be handing out food baskets and doing community assessments because I don't care about all of that right. stuff. Like I would never do it with passion. And it, I'm a very passionate person. And so it's important to me that the things I do that I'm able to like connect with deeply, I'm able to connect with people. So I applied to Roosevelt University to their clinical psychology program. And I got in, and so I switched programs, and I did their program and, and just flew through it. And I knew then, when I got in their program, at that point, my whole attitude changed, my self-esteem and, and my self-efficacy. And I was like, my first day in, I remember they had us go around and introduce ourselves, and I said, I'm Joel Fillmore, and I'm just here moving on towards my doctorate. And that's exactly what I said <laughs> the first day of class, you know, because I knew at that point, like, all of these like lies and myths that I had grown up to believe about myself that my, of the abuse I experienced and the things my family told me, like, because I was black, I was dumb and I would never amount to anything. Like I'd internalized all that. And through the process of education and the relationships that I built while I was getting my education, like in the therapy I experienced, like I realized that I was, I got to pick and choose which of those narratives 
I wanted to believe. And I chose to, you know, so when I got my bachelor's degree, I started to think, maybe I'm not dumb. That's why I applied for my master's degree. When I got into my master's degree and saw how well I was doing, as I said, I think I'm smart. And that's when I applied to my doctoral program at NIU and I got in and I, I flew through that program. I aced that program at NIU. And, you know, they, one of my professors said, nobody has gone through this coursework as quickly as you have, you know? I left their ABD with a job and a book deal, literally. I wasn't even a full professor. I hadn't even finished my doctorate and I had a book deal, you know? And um, I left there and I said, I'm brilliant, you know? And so I just watched education completely transform me. And, and despite the fact, and I say despite, like, two, you know, tongue in cheek, but despite the fact that education has transformed me, I'm still that little gun rat in the street. And I own that. I own that. Because, because I'm not ashamed of where I come from. Right. And, and people need to know where I come from because there's a lot more professors in the street. A lot more. Yeah, and it's, I'm sure as you got into those master's degree programs where you started really learning about the ins and outs of how to be a counselor and how to do that stuff for other people, to, where, again, when you're going to counseling yourself, you're learning about, you know, in processing and working through all of your experiences, but it had to be fascinating to be, you know, in the classroom learning about these things and being like exploring these concepts in that way in a classroom and being like, oh, here's how I can apply it to other people. Here's how I can apply it to everything else. Well, if you think that's it, get this. Yeah. The reason I love therapy and the reason that after 17 years, I still am in love with my husband and he's my best friend and we have an amazing marriage is because everything I do in therapy, I apply it to my own life. Yeah. And like one of the, my favorite things to do is couples therapy. I'm an, I, I'm an amazing couples therapist. And I will tell you that in a heartbeat. And that doesn't mean I will save your marriage because I can't save anybody's marriage. But I promise you, if your marriage can be saved, working with me and if you do the work, you'll save it. But also, I'll, I will help you figure out if maybe this is the end of your relationship mm -hmm. to save you some time and pain, right? Yeah. Yeah, again, this is an education show, and you know the people that we have on are nominated because you know people found them you know inspirational, their story, they've you know helped them become who they are, all these things. And I'm I'm curious for you at any point in your education journey, and you know I I guess you can even say in your therapy journey, have some did you have someone that you felt like did that for you and that really inspired you or helped you become the person that you are? Well, ironically enough, I think um, the person that is my muse in this field is the very person I think who recommended me to you, which is uh, Dr. Scott Wickman. I, there you go. Like hand, hands down, hands down. I mean, in my entire, you know, I've met some, some pillars in the counselor education field that I've worked, you know, with like some of the greatest, in the field, um, but none have inspired me and none have poured more of themselves into who I am as a, as a therapist and as an educator than Dr. Scott Wickman. And again, I would argue part of the, part of the interesting thing about that is, is he very much has the same type of energy that I do and he's a troublemaker and he's the kind of professor that gets in trouble, you know, yeah. he, he, he makes waves. And so um, I, I think we both, I, I think, he connected. He connected with my chaos. It was yeah. He's. I think he's. He, he's such a 
an interesting phenomenon there. Oh, you know, our, we got to talk to so many fascinating things where we vacillated rapidly between talking about counseling education and also about how he's like trying to train the squirrels in his backyard, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I'm always curious about the things that within a certain field of expertise, so for you, counseling and counseling education, like I always ask people at the end of my interviews about things they feel like should be talked about more because, you know, I feel like that always gets good answers out of people being like, what do you feel like people aren't talking about enough? And so for you, I'm curious, again, for either just counseling in general or counseling education, is there a part of that that you just – wish that more people talked about when they talked about it or is more important than people might think who don't live in that realm all the time? Well, you know, I think, I think for me, the biggest thing that there's a reason that I'm not doing education full time. I mean, besides the fact that, you know, I, I just really prefer doing clinical work as well as the financial compensation I get from clinical work is that you know, one of the things I've noticed just in my own personal journey of education is that the focus has changed so much, hmm. you know, in that it, it used to be education, especially higher education, graduate, and especially a doctorate um, was, you know, kind of like a holy grail that, that few, that many sought and few attained. And it was just this like, oh, pie in the sky. Yeah. And now it's almost like McDonald's or, you know, where you just, you know, that's kind of the mentality. Like, I paid to be here. I expect a degree, and we're not going to argue about whether or not I'm actually doing the work. You know, because I've had it. Like, what really kind of soured me is in my at, towards the end of my uh, latter years teaching these last few years. Is like I've had experiences where I had to fail students because they didn't actually do the physical work. They showed up to class every day. They engaged and participated, but they didn't actually do the work. So I failed them, and then they. Um, repealed it, uh, appealed it, and the department gave him a passing grade. And I'm like, how does that work? Why do you feel how, like that is? Is it just about the grade? financial aspect of it, or? Yeah. How do you get a passing grade simply because you appealed that when when you failed legitimately? But that that to me that says you get you pay for passing grades, and so I, I'm not okay with that because I'm a very direct person. I call shit like I see it, and that's again that isn't always the professional route right you know? yeah so I, I i feel like it cheapens the experience for everyone else and 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 let me be clear i don't think education in and of itself should be elitist i think anybody should be able to learn anything they want yeah. but you should at the very least be held to the same standards right that's it that's all i'm saying you should be held to the same. so if you don't pass you don't pass take the class again let's see what you did and because let's be let's be honest and fair in my profession in and of itself, I think that the hardest part about my profession, I think, is actually being able to take the information and apply it in a way and utilize it in a way that feels genuine and organic and authentic and allows you to connect with people. Otherwise, you're just, you know, just somebody who memorized a bunch of theories and you're just kind of regurgitating what you read in the book. Right. There's especially with counseling, there's a very personal, like interpersonal part of this where you have to you have to know how to talk to people and you have to know how to connect with people. Exactly. And 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 if and if who I am at my core is a guy who uses the F word as punctuation, but as a therapist I'm trying to be this kind of button down person, it's it's gonna come through in the way or the way that the way that I do or the way that I am not able to connect with my clients. They're gonna they're gonna say this guy isn't really being authentic. I'll tell you this. 
I have a thriving practice. I, you know, I work out of a private practice in St. Charles called St. Charles Advanced Therapy. And I also have a second job because I love, because I work from home so I can work as much as I want, work for a, a totally online international, a national uh, therapy uh, company called Vita Health. So I get to sit home all day. You know, I get to pick and choose the days that I want to work, when I want to work. Right now, I work two, three really, really busy days. And then I have like four days of just sitting around watching Netflix. I have the greatest freaking life. The greatest. Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get amazing guests like Dr. Joel Fillmore. Send them our way at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And just as a reminder, on the next episode of this show, I had a blast chatting with Joel's championship-winning drag queen alter ego, Mona Lott, about educating through drag and breaking down real issues through the podcast Mental Health is a Drag. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share it. If you like what we can do, that's the best way to help us out. Also, please subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date on everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this week's webpage on WNIJ.org. Big thanks to the Northern Illinois Band Kind Ofs for the music you hear every single episode. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.